Thus, church, there's only three responses when we consider Jesus as king. We can do what Israel did and reject him. We can do what the nations and every other human heart has done, and that's to rage against him and his law, or we can receive him. You're listening to a special message preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, or to learn more about Jesus, visit thisisshoreline.com. Jesus, you are our Savior and our King, and it's with joy this morning that we draw from the wells of salvation. We want to give thanks to you as we've just called upon your name and made a joyful noise with our lips and with our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that we have the opportunity to exalt your name through this exposition of your timeless and treasured word. And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would teach us, instruct us, encourage us, equip us, convict us, and lead us in the way of righteousness. We thank you for our sovereign, our ruler, our Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And we ask that you'd be exalted and glorified And we ask this in the name of Christ the King, and all God's people who agree say, Amen. 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 Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. If human rulers, if earthly potentates, if worldly kings expect our allegiance and our applause, how much more the King of kings and the Lord of all lords? This morning we continue our series the coming king, and last week we answered the question from Psalm 24, who is the king of glory? And we learned in that chapter that Yahweh, the creator, is king and sovereign over all creation, and he rules in righteousness. His is a moral kingdom. His citizens must be cleansed and purified on the inside and within. And though he is set apart and he is holy, he yet desires to be near his people. He wants to be Emmanuel, God with us. And in his presence is fullness of joy. We learned last week there's only one who's worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord, and that is his own son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This morning, we want to continue this series looking at the incarnation of Jesus, but what I want to do is to look at it through the lens of his royal kingship. It has been said that there is a scarlet thread that runs throughout all of Scripture from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. The crimson thread of redemption, of substitution, of blood and death. It's a picture of Christ's atoning sacrifice for our sins. But there's also a purple thread. Purple, of course, being that picture of royalty. There is a thread that runs throughout all of the scriptures that speak of the kingship, the royalty of Jesus. The reality is Jesus is no ordinary king because he's no ordinary man. He may have been born as a baby, but as we just sang, he's no ordinary child. His birth was no ordinary birth. He may have been born in Bethlehem on what you and I sing as a, maybe a silent night, but he existed far before that moment. And this is a bit unprecedented in our studies of the text of scripture. We typically are going verse by verse, and we've been in the book of Genesis, so we'll be back in Genesis in January as we look at the life of Jacob. But in the sermon this morning, we actually have five points. Five points. That's unprecedented. Someone said, oh, so our pastor is a five-pointer. I knew it. All right. 
Well, in our time together in God's word, uh, there is actually one mega point, and the rest are four smaller points. And so what I want us to do is to begin here, Bradley just read to us not the birth of Jesus, but moments before the death of Jesus. As we examine for just a moment, I'd like us to examine Pilate's dialogue with Jesus about his kingdom. And what I want to do is do a brief survey of the scriptures and look at that purple thread and the tension between Jesus, the true king, and Israel, who rejected him even though they should have received him, and what does happen when we receive him as king. J.I. Packer said this, quote, without God's explanatory word, God's redemptive action could not be recognized for what it was. He says, the clearest revelation of God, which is the incarnation, is nevertheless the most opaque to men, end quote. So I want to make what seems to be opaque very clear. Uh, it was opaque to Pilate, it was opaque to Israel, and there are reasons for that. So if you're taking note, uh, we're going to do a five-point sermon here, which I've never done before. And uh, look at John 18, and look at this first point on the screen. If you're taking note, the first thing I want us to know is the king and his kingdom are not of this world. Look at verse 33 again, John 18. Pilate entered his headquarters again, and he called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Remember, this is moments before his crucifixion. And Jesus is standing before Pontius Pilate, who was known as the Roman prefect or governor of Judea. Pilate had the power to free Jesus from condemnation, but he ends up caving into the pressure of the populace. And that wasn't just because Pilate was soft. There's actually a lot more going on. As Rome's representative in Judea, his role of prefect or governor had three tasks. Of course, we know one task that government always seems to be involved with is to collect taxes. So nothing has changed since then. There were imperial taxes that had to be collected. These were a bit more exorbitant than in our time today. So we can relax a little bit. Secondly, the prefect was to indoctrinate the people under his jurisdiction in the Roman culture. So in Israel, there's such a national identity, there was no way that they're going to adopt the Roman way of life. They put up with it, but the Roman influence, this invasive influence, was something they tolerated, but it's certainly not something that they embraced and wanted. So the third role that the prefect had was to maintain law and order through what's known as Pax Romana, which just simply means peace, but it's a peace that came with a sword in the hand. This is a peace that had to be maintained amidst great tension between both Pilate and the Jews. And at this point in Pilate's career, as Jesus is standing before him, there were at least three incidents that had happened that now threatened his tenure. Some suggest that if there were just one more little uprising, the Caesar, Caesar Tiberius, would have come for Pilate's head. And so there's a little bit of walking on eggshells here. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, we learn that Pilate had had uh, allegedly mixed the blood of some Galilean worshipers with their sacrifices. And so this informs us Pilate was not soft. He was violent. He was bloodthirsty. He was ruthless. He would have had no problem making a point of anyone who tried to cause an insurrection under his authority. But at this time, he's incredibly fearful of where he stood with the Caesar. So now we have Jesus, who has just ridden into Jerusalem which we looked at a little bit last week with the king of glory in Psalm 24. 
He has just this past Sunday ridden into Jerusalem on the donkey to the cheers and the praise of thousands. And Pilate only knew this Jesus of Nazareth as a populist rabbi. He knew he was beloved by the people. He knew he was being hailed as their Messiah. And Rome may have interpreted that as their king. And so if there's one more dust up, Pilate's job and life may be in jeopardy. And so he does his best to try to dodge an uprising. So he asks Jesus directly, are you the king of the Jews? Look how Jesus answers in verse 34. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? I love this because who's questioning whom? Who's really on trial? It's not this Roman ruler, it's Jesus. Pilate answered him, uh, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So note with me the two distinct kingdoms here. We have Pilate's, I'm going to do air quotes, his kingdom, which was over Judea. And then we have this man, Jesus, who seems to be saying he's the king of the Jews. This is a threat to Pilate. This is a threat to Rome. So he needs to get a little bit more information. Jesus answered, verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. In other words, Jesus is saying, I have a kingdom from above. It is beyond and above this world. Psalm 103.19 tells us, Yahweh has established his throne, not on earth, but in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. In fact, the earth is just his footstool. That's where he lays his feet. But his kingdom is over all. Jesus here says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's beyond it. It's above it. It's over it. Even your puny jurisdiction, Pilate, it bows the knee to King Jesus. John Piper says it this way. He says, quote, he sits as king on his throne of the universe, and his kingly rule, his kingdom and his reign, governs all things. The basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's kingly rule, his reign, his action, his lordship, and his sovereign governance, end quote. So Jesus says, my kingdom is so much bigger than just overseeing some of the Jews here in Judea. Well, then verse 37, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus says, this is the purpose for my coming, that I am king, and those who listen to me, those who have heard my voice, they also are of the truth. I came to bear witness to the truth. In Jesus' first advent, his first coming, Jesus came as teacher, not as warrior. He didn't come to expand his boundaries through power, but through truth. And the truth here in verse 37 means the truth about God, the truth about Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about creation, about man, about gender, about sexuality, about sin, about salvation and eternity, and all of the doctrine that we understand as Christians. Everyone who is of the truth, Jesus says, listens to me. They in a word, receive him. Just think of this scene for a minute. Truth incarnate is standing before this conflicted puppet politician 
And all he can respond with in verse 38 is, what is truth? Pilate's response is the trademark of postmodernism, isn't it? What do we do with truth? Well, we deconstruct it, we question it, we tear down what's established, what we perceive to be true, what is objective truth. We now make it subjective and we question it. We are now the judges of truth rather than truth being the judges of us. And we live in a time in history where people echo Pilate's question as a pseudo-creed, what is truth? Well, Pilate goes on to try and release Jesus. He finds no fault in him. But the religious leaders demand he must be crucified. And we'll come back to that near the end of the sermon. But to absolve himself of all responsibility, what does Pilate do? He symbolically washes his hands. This was an act of cowardice and indifference. And Jesus is then scourged and executed under Pilate's authority. Remember, above Jesus' head on the cross, there was a criminal charge typically posted. Remember what was posted above Jesus' head in three different languages? The king of the Jews. And the irony is not lost on us. As much as the Jews wanted that change to, no, he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate said, uh, what I've written, I've written. And the truth is, Israel should have known as they stood before their crucified Messiah, they should have known this is, Jesus is the king of the Jews. God had been giving them revelatory clues ever since the Garden of Eden. He had been embedding the kingship of Christ in prophecy after insight after prediction. They should have known, they should have expected and been ready to receive their king. And so what I want to do is just for a minute, I want to do something different on this mega point. The second point is a mega point. And what I want to do is look at how Israel was informed of who this king would be. And so this really as a point could stand alone as an entire sermon or two or 12. So for this point, I want us just to take a brief journey together through the Old Testament and look for clues for king and kingdom. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 1, 1. Or if you're on some sort of device, swipe there. Genesis 1. And I just want to make a few points about what Israel was supposed to be looking for. Genesis 1, 1, the first minor point within the second point is that Yahweh is king of creation. We also uh, post our sermons online on thisisshoreline.com. So if you're not able to write all these down, we'll post the slides and the notes uh, on the website as well. So look at page one, verse one, Genesis one, when in the beginning, God. The first four words of our Bible define all that we need to know about the one who's sovereign over the universe. In the beginning, God. And then at the very conclusion of the Bible, you don't need to turn there, but in Revelation 22, 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. I am the beginning and the end. The Alpha, of course, is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and Omega is the final letter. And so if we use the English language, Jesus would say, I am the A to Z. I am the first, I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. I am the origin and the outcome the source, the means, and the reason that all things exist. In the beginning, God. And then we learn who this God is as we go through the scripture. He reveals himself to Abraham and others as Yahweh, the loving covenantal God who desires to be with his people. But here we just learn in the beginning, what was there? There was God. God existed outside of creation. Creation, we start to read about in this chapter, but before we get to the creation, we have 
God. He is supreme. He is preeminent. He's in a category by himself. He is, in a word, king. God is king. In this creation account, God uh, graciously and masterfully creates mankind as sort of the magnum opus of his creation. We see all these glorious things. I mean, we see stars, we see the heavens, we see space, we see the glory of earth, and yet the shining achievement is mankind. And so, in six literal days, God crowns the creation on day six with mankind. So our second idea here is that mankind was actually created in commission as God or Yahweh's vice regent, the one who represents him in his absence. So look down with me at verse 26, Genesis 1. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. There's a picture of the Godhead, the Trinity. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. I mean, we're down to insects. He's covered everything. Mankind is now the authority under God's ultimate authority. So then verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and then subdue it. That's a picture of rule. Have dominion, another picture of authority. Over what? Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Nancy Guthrie explains this. She says, quote, In the ancient world, a king would place images of himself or statues in far-off provinces. The images of the king told everyone that these provinces were part of the king's domain. Mankind was made in the image of God to be his representative in his kingdom. That's why Adam was commissioned. She says, By making us his representatives and placing us on earth, he declares that this earth belongs to him, and he's the ruler over it. We belong to him and are responsible to him, end quote. So not only is mankind here created in God's image, he's also commissioned. He's commissioned to fill the earth. That means to uh, multiply, have children, have more image bearers, and have dominion over creation. So thus the scriptures begin from the very first chapter to show us mankind was instructed by God to represent him, to obey his rule, discharged by the sovereign to subdue the earth, all of creation, as an extension of his own authority. Now, we know what happens, don't we? God puts Adam in the garden, not only to tend it, but Genesis 2.15, to keep it. That means to protect it, to be an authority over it. And to keep the garden doesn't just mean he organized nice rows of radishes and knew how to pull weeds. The idea here is to guard it from danger, to extend God's rule and authority. And that's exactly what Adam fails to do. So turn with me over to Genesis chapter 3. Don't worry, we're not going to go this slow through all of the Bible. Like, wow, it's going to be a long sermon. We have a second service, so we'll have to get through it. Notice this third point, the king's man fails. So the seed of woman is promised. Genesis 3 verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, I know we're, 
we're jumping right into the thick of the action here of the story. But essentially, rather than submitting to God's law, mankind would define for himself now what is right, true, and good. Adam abdicated his authority to his wife. She abdicated the truth to the serpent and his deception. And now their nakedness is exposed. And now man's shame is great. And as a result, he's banished out of the garden. His authority to hold and keep the garden is removed. He's kicked out. He's banished from the tree of life. He's exiled, so to speak, eastward from the intimate presence of the king. Greg Gilbert says this, quote, he says, this is a time in the garden for Adam to exercise his kingship and Eve, her queenship, to recognize the evil that the serpent represents, to judge it and to cast it out of the garden entirely. Essentially, in eating the fruit that God had forbidden them, Adam and Eve declared they would not have his authority over them. They looked to the high king and said, by action, if not in word, you will not rule us. We will take the crown for ourselves, end quote. You see, we're only three chapters into the story and the king's man has failed. Does this mean his kingdom is forever in jeopardy? How will any of this get redeemed, let alone sorted out? You see, in the middle, of God's judgment against the sin and corruption here, as God curses the serpent for his guilt, there's a curious statement down in Genesis 3.15. And here's the statement. God says, I will put enmity, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, ladies, this has nothing to do with the fact that women typically don't like snakes. That's not the idea here at all. This has everything to do with Eve's future seed, singular, offspring, coming to crush the head of Satan. One day, it's promised here that a future ruler, a descendant of Eve, will put an end to the works of the devil and will put him to death, even as his own life endures the twins bruising. So this future Messiah is going to restore what was lost in Adam and lost in the garden. And thus, his kingdom is now at enmity with this anti-kingdom introduced by the serpent. Now, let's flip ahead a little faster to Genesis 22. All right, let's look to Genesis 22. We just studied this recently, so to catch you up in what happened in between, we have a global flood, we have Noah's sons representing the nations now scattered out from Babel. Yahweh comes to Abram, this idolater who lived in Ur of the Chaldees. And God had called him, go to the land that I will show you. God promises Abraham in Genesis 17, 6, he says, kings shall come from you, Abraham. And so after a lifetime of obedience and faith and waiting, Abraham offers his son Isaac. We studied this recently. God stops his hand. And then look at verse 17, Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, Abraham, I will surely bless you I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring, or seed, singular, shall possess the gate of his enemies. That's a picture of, of authority, of kingship, of rule. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Paul points out in Galatians 3, this is a picture of Christ, of Jesus, the Messiah who put an end to sin and provided redemption. 
Through this coming king, all of the nations will receive the blessing of reconciliation with the Father. So after this happens, just to speed us up, generations later, we have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We have the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Eventually they die out. We have judges now protecting Israel. And as a nation, the people wanted a king. They wanted a king like all the other nations. Now, desiring a king in and of itself isn't wrong. It was that they were rejecting God as king. And they wanted to be just like the other nations and have a man rule over them. And Saul, who was Israel's first human king, just like Adam, failed miserably. And so thus God rejects him and raises up a man after his own heart, this young shepherd boy, David. And so let's speed up the narrative and look over at 2 Samuel chapter 7. Skipping quite ahead, 2 Samuel 7. This next point is that the king will sit on David's throne forever. Towards the end of David's life, God promises him, again, he was not a perfect king, uh, full of mistakes and sin, and yet uh, repentive, a man after God's heart. At the end of David's life, God promises him, your dynasty will endure forever. So 2 Samuel 7, starting around verse 11, it says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, again, there's that word again, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father, uh, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, in a small way, this is a picture of Solomon, David's son. Bathsheba's uh, son, Solomon, born to David. Solomon was David's offspring. Solomon did become king. He did sit on the throne. He did receive the mercy and love of God, even though he also sinned greatly. And he did become the one to build the eventual temple for God's presence. However, Solomon died. So how could he be the promised offspring, the seed whose throne was established forever? You see, the Old Testament prophets anticipated that this section of 2 Samuel 7, that this perpetual king had not yet taken his throne. And they looked with great anticipation for his arrival. When we go through the rest of the Old Testament, we see Isaiah tells us there's going to be a son who is born. He's the mighty God. He's the prince of peace. He's the everlasting father. He's going to sit on his father David's throne. He's going to rule in righteousness. We learn in Isaiah 42 that this coming king will come with a quiet nature of a servant, and he'll uphold justice on the earth. Daniel, in his prophecy, interprets Nebuchadnezzar's vision of a coming kingdom which will never be destroyed in Daniel 2.44. But there's a couple other clues that we get before we close the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me, two more stops in this journey. We come to Micah chapter 5. And yes, you can use your table of contents to find Micah if you're not sure where his book is at. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, or you can look on the screen with me. The king 
we're told, will be born in Bethlehem from the tribe of Judah. Micah 5, 2 says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem, Judah, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Micah's prophecy reveals to us this king will come from Bethlehem, from the tribe of Judah, but that will not be where he originates from. He is actually from of old, from ancient days. And then finally, we have one more stop in Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, tells us that the king will be a righteous, saving king, and he'll ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, we close the Old Testament anticipating a coming king who will be, if we're keeping count, a son of David, a son of Abraham, a king whose kingdom will never come to an end, one who will be born in Bethlehem, who will be a righteous man, who will be a suffering servant, who will be the anointed Messiah, bearing sin, ruling in righteousness, and coming humbly. And we know, of course, on this side of the incarnation, all of this points back to Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The Christmas hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, captures what the majority of Israel missed with this poetic line where it says, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. There's so much more that I had to trim out for time's sake, but I want to jump into these last three points. They're much shorter, but know with me our third point here. Not only was Israel supposed to be anticipating and knowing, but the king did come to Israel and she rejected him. So turn with me back in your Bibles to John chapter 19. And let's read what happens to Jesus, but let's look specifically at how the Jews respond, starting around verse 9. To catch us up on what has happened, Pilate has had Jesus flogged, a crown of thorns has been placed upon his head, and he's been dressed in a purple robe. Remember I told you there's a purple thread that runs throughout Scripture, not literally the color purple, but this idea of a symbol of royalty. And here, Pilate and the soldiers of Rome are dressing Jesus in a way of derision, of mockery. They're not meaning to actually worship him, but to humiliate him. The soldiers cry out, Hail, King of the Jews, as they strike him with their hands. Pilate then presents Jesus before the people, and the religious leaders demand that he be crucified. And Pilate says, but he's innocent. And remember, as Bradley read there's sort of an exchange between Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas' name, remember Bar means son in Aramaic, Abba. He, his name Barabbas means son of God or son of the Father. And so he is exchanged, substituted, if you would, and Jesus takes Barabbas' place, but he also takes our place at Calvary. 
Pilate says he's innocent, and they say, no, he deserves to die. He's calling himself Barabbas, the son of God. And verse 8 tells us Pilate heard that, and he became very afraid. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 in John 18, or no, 19. Pilate uh, entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless I had been, or it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Of course, this was the political pressure point that was perfectly applied by the religious leaders to force Pilate's hand. Oh, you're no friend of Caesar. You're opposing Caesar Tiberius. Remember, Pilate had that stress in his background. And so it's either Jesus is put to death or his own life would have been in jeopardy. So verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Now, church, their response should have been, hail King Jesus. But instead, verse 15 says, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? Shall I execute your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Really, we have no king but Caesar? You see, this is the moment at which John in his gospel in the first chapter says, John 1, 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Just think of that. Israel, Jesus' own people reject him as their king. And we know scores of men and women have done the same through the ages. But rejection is not the only reaction. We read Psalm 2 earlier in our time of confession. Psalm 2 tells us there's another reaction that runs deeper. And that brings us to our fourth point. Again, we'll move very quickly now. The fourth point is that the nations of this world, they don't just reject him as king. They rage against him as king. Psalm 2 says this, why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, those who are in Adam, they set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is a picture of rebellion. All of the nations fall into this category. All of humanity has together cast aside the rule of God through his law, and they've exchanged that for lawlessness. There has been a worldwide mutiny against the creator God who is loving, holy, just, and all-powerful. And this greatest authority, God's authority, it resides and rules over the heart of every human being who has ever breathed. And yet, 
The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. David the psalmist in Psalm 2 warns the nations, as we read earlier, to kiss the son. That means to embrace him, to receive him as king. But in defiant rebellion, we know the world seeks to defy him in blind and futile rage. So thus, in his first advent, Jesus comes to bear sin. But in his second advent, his second coming, Jesus will come as warrior and judge. And he won't ride a donkey. He'll ride the radiant royal white horse of glorious war as he comes to put an end to his enemies. Thus, church, there's only three responses when we consider Jesus as king. We can do what Israel did and reject him. We can do what the nations and every other human heart has done, and that's to rage against him and his law, or we can receive him. And that is our final point this morning. Number five, those who receive the king are made citizens and sons. John 1.12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I love this verse because from our human perspective, we look at our salvation and we say, yeah, we've received him. We didn't reject him. We, we don't rage against him anymore. We've received him. And yet from God's perspective, we're his children. We were born again, not of blood from our parents, not of our own human will, but from him. We are the begotten of God, the children of God. We are those who have received our king, who have believed in his name. And the scriptures declare not only are we welcomed in, ushered into his kingdom, citizens of heaven, but better than that, we're also his adopted sons and daughters. And so as we consider the kingdom of God, the kingship of Jesus, May we hail him as king of the Jews. Born not in regal pomp, but in humble poverty. Our glorious and promised king traded the joys of heaven for the frailty of our broken flesh. The king of creation, the seed of Eve and Abraham, came to bear our sin and to redeem us, to bless all peoples through his redemptive work. So this year as we're exchanging gifts as we're, some of us with pain, remembering some painful memories this time of year, let's be honest. Let's maybe push beyond the consumerism and our own sorrow and let's look at the redemptive work and birth of King Jesus. May this closing song we're about to sing be our creed. It goes this way, and you know the song, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery in the Dawning of the King He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. May that be our creed and our prayer this Advent, this Christmas season, that we look on Christ, look to Christ, who came humbly, who came to bear our sin, who came as king, who was rejected by his own, who was raged against by all in this world, but to those who received him, he gave the right to be called children of God. And that is who we are. That is what we are. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to close in song, and I invite you to bow your heads with me. And this song is a song of dedication. It is an invitation to come and to behold, to look. And as Israel came and beheld the king in his suffering glory, 
They yelled out, crucify. May we cry out, hail King Jesus. May we receive him and worship him and adore him. Father, thank you for sending your own son, our glorious king. Lord, we ask that as we continue to reflect on the incarnation of Christ this season, that we would put aside our greed in trying to outdo last year's gifts and trying to impress others with our interior or exterior illumination. Lord, may we look beyond the sorrows of loss and grief, not forgetting those loved ones that are no longer with us, but anchoring our hope, not in the the seasons that we had with them, but Lord, anchoring our hope in the fact that the Redeemer has come, that light and life has come to this world. There is certainly death that has affected our world, and yet we can look beyond that with hope because the true light that was coming into the, to the world has come, and he is the resurrection and the life. Lord, we thank you that this time of year we can celebrate our coming king who not only has come, but is coming again. And so, Lord, with Isaac Watts and with the psalmist, we declare joy to the world, for the Lord has come. May we receive our king. Lord, we thank you and we worship you. We dedicate our lives to you as we sing this closing song together. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.